Hello and welcome to the Sala podcast. This episode is a live recording of Art Speak, which is a series of talks run by the Adelaide Central School of Art that have been recorded in collaboration with Sala Festival. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us. I would like to acknowledge that the land that we meet on today is the traditional land to the Ghana people. We pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today we're very fortunate to be joined by Julia Robinson, a supremely talented visual artist and an Adelaide Central School of Art lecturer. Julia is exhibited as part of the Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art, twice, uh, and the National at the MCA in Sydney, Artspace and CAXA. Uh, Julia currently has a wonderful exhibition, The Beckoning Blade, currently showing at Hugo Michel Gallery. This show features a sequence of works that uncannily combine weathered, antiquated farming equipment and intricately crafted textile works to create an unusual, brightly hued apparitions which haunt the gallery space. The exhibition is a tour de force and one of the absolute standouts of this Sala season. Julia is here to talk to us about this exhibition, her processes and some of the thinking behind the work. Welcome, Julia. Thank you, Andrew. Um, the beckoning blade feels like such a unique, idiosyncratic amalgam of elements. But I know this body work connects very deeply with your cultural background. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, where this comes from? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I'm a second generation Australian. So my parents emigrated and I was the first of my family line to be born here. Uh, and my parents are originally from England. They met in Colchester. They're both from Essex and Suffolk. And I have been really fortunate growing up that my parents wanted me to be really connected with my um, kind of my family over there, maybe not so much my cultural heritage, although that's part of it. And so I've been to England a lot of times and I spent a lot of time over there on family holidays and extended trips. And I feel like it's just been so much a part of my upbringing to have this kind of almost dual identity, this kind of connection to uh, what I could, would almost kind of call a spiritual homeland. I feel really, really deeply connected to my kind of cultural um, heritage and my ancestral roots. So, um, yeah, uh, so a lot of the things I'm really interested in are uh, from, from the British Isles, from England and from Scotland, a lot of the folklore and the superstitions that I refer to in my work and the mythologies come from connecting very deeply with that, um, that part of my, my uh, identity and my um, yeah, kind of ancestral past. Because mm. there, there is a romance to that second home, that sort of desired location as well. And when you talk about sort of folklore and folk traditions, I think something that might not be immediately obvious to viewers that see your work, but I think is a big sort of influence for you is a lot of those kinds of folk festivals, the kind of costuming and a lot of those kind of mythological uh, creatures that, that um, are so prevalent in mm. the uh, folk traditions of the United Kingdom. What are, what are some of those standout Right. Well, there's so, there's so many. And I think this is the sort of thing I, that I've connected so much with it over the years and, and increasingly in my practice. Uh, and I really look at folk traditions now that are currently um, uh, currently being performed across England and Scotland. Uh, and they often might be kind of folk traditions or festivals that are centuries old or have been kind of revived or kept alive by communities. And I think that's really interesting to me as well about people currently performing these festivals but kind of linking back to their past as well so I think that's something that particularly kind of uh, connects with me in terms of specific kind of connections um, a couple of examples so my paternal grandparents um, just for kind of context lived in 
Essex in a town called Lawford, which is right next to Manningtree and Missley, which is where Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General, did a lot of his foul work. So there's always been that kind of connection to me of like really significant kind of historical stories really landed right on the doorstep of my, my grandparents. Um, but in terms of current festivals and things that I, I follow, I haven't been to, to any of them yet. I'd love to get there. But my favourite would be uh, the Burry Man, which is uh, this man completely who – so this festival takes place in the second Friday of August every year in South Queens Ferry in Scotland. And it's a man completely covered in the burrs of a burdock plant from head to toe. You can't barely see his eyes. You can just about see his mouth. And he parades through the streets on about a seven-mile walk. Uh, moving all around the different locations and uh, all the local community come out and they feed him whiskey through a straw and it's really good luck to be seen with the Burry Man, have your photograph taken with him and it's meant to, they believe the symbology of the Burry Man is he's a sort of scapegoat for the community carrying the evils out of the village each year and ensuring a good sea harvest for example. So he's probably my favourite uh, bucket list um, festival that I really want to experience that I've only experienced via social media and online. And I think he stands as a really fascinating example because to encounter him today from a contemporary context, he might look humorous in many ways, but the folk traditions that are tied up with that figure are often quite life or death. Certainly in that sort of start of those religious festivals, uh, those sort of folk festivals, this idea of good harvest and so forth. That didn't happen. Entire communities would be a threat. And so I suppose that what I'm getting at is that underneath those kinds of Uh, seemingly humorous elements, there are darker undercurrents. And I think that that's really something that comes through in The Beckoning Blade as well. This feels like a darker body of work for you. There are elements of humor there, as there often are in your work, Um, but there are elements of violence and sort of disturbing oddity, deformity as well. Is this body of work connecting with other cultural touchstones for you? Yeah, so I think um, that obviously leads me to talk about folk horror, but uh, folk horror is, you know, um, like the Burry Man and things like that, there is this kind of I think of it as this knife's edge between sort of the sort of positive energy and kind of negative things that can happen. So that, yeah, a harvest is literally life or death in um, many cultures and, and in the past. Um, so folk horror is the kind of real touchstone for this body of work. And that's probably why this particular the Beckoning Blade leans much more into that darkness that you were talking about and maybe pulls back a little bit on the humour. Um, folk horror, to describe that, it's a funny one because it's such a nebulous territory and lots of people have tried to describe folk horror and not you know it's a very um they talk about it like trying to describe fog <laughs> like it's really kind of edgeless and it changes with different contexts um but i think about folk horror as this really kind of neat conjoint conjoined kind of words folk and horror or folklore and horror kind of splicing together folk horror could be seen as the kind of violent conjoining of pagan and pre-christian traditions or customs with Uh, horror tropes or horror themes and it frequently manifests mostly manifests in the filmic tradition uh, and also in uh, literature as well Uh, but there are a lot of artists really engaging with folk horror as well and obviously that's the lens that I bring to it although I do look at a lot of films and read a lot of folk horror fiction as part of my um, as part of the research into that topic. And I think some of those films that you've been researching formed a quite a quite a strong influence for this exhibition. Is there one that stands out amongst the others? There is one that stands out, Andrew, and it is the, <laughs> the 1973 Robin Hardy film, The Wicker Man, 
which has been a really uh, influential film in my practice for many years, um, and it's just been slowly sifting to the surface. So I've often cited The Wicker Man. Um, it's a seminal folk horror film. Almost, I think that's where folk horror comes from, that, that particular uh, film or around that area. Um, and that I've often cited it as a kind of a latent influence in my practice. And when I started devising the work for The Beckoning Blade, which didn't have a title back then, obviously, I thought, you know, I'm just going to lean into this. I'm going to make this the folk horror show and I'm going to cast the Wicker Man right, you know, front and center and bring it right into the foreground and, and kind of, uh, yeah, make it, make it my kind of homage to the Wicker Man. I don't expect that if, you know, if people haven't seen The Wicker Man, it's not that you won't get the show. It's not like a kind of key to unlocking it. But if you have seen it, it definitely would sort of bring uh, some of the narratives to the surface or you'd, you'd probably look at the works in a slightly different way or maybe notice little things about the film that I've directly referenced. Mm. But I, I was really using it as flavour. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there are sort of visual resonances and echoes, mm. particularly in the palette of some mm. of those outfits that directly reference some of the, the visual imagery in, in The Wicker Man. And the, and the installation of the work too as well. There's this really famous scene in The Wicker Man, this May Day procession, which is not specific to the the Wicker Man, obviously, May Day processions are a really old tradition in many, many cultures, and I look at a lot of May Day processions when I'm researching, but there is this particular May Day procession in The Wicker Man, which is the kind of climax of the film, and I particularly thought about that with the installation of the work, that the pieces in the gallery would form a kind of eerie pageantry along one wall with these kind of the objects, the, the sculptures being kind of almost like characters in that procession, or costumes or objects that might be used in a ritual uh, for a ritual purpose. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation and something I wasn't aware of. Certainly the way that they're installed in the exhibition, it is not a sort of eye level, uh, all in a row hang, as that, as that description of pageantry might suggest. They kind of move up and down almost like a musical notation on a scale or a kind of that kind of hurly burly of a parade as well. I think that's really nicely done. Thank you. Yeah, the, the works had been in my studio, for, obviously, for two years accumulating and uh, my studio is not incredibly big, but I've got these quite tall walls and I was sort of storing them up on the walls and I was thinking about the, some of them as being like, they are the high up ones, they're the eye level ones, they're the below level ones. And some of them, I think, have a particular energy or movement to them that I wanted to kind of invoke as well in that, that kind of wall of procession. And I suppose talking about pageantry and talking about these sort of folk traditions like the Burry Man, that, that kind of costuming, the, the works um, involve such prominent textile elements and textile elements that are evoke clothing very clearly and, and costuming as well. The techniques you use are remarkably intricate and complex. Um, I believe that there's a particular process that you've used in these works that has particular relevance to the context of the work itself. Yeah, so in this particular body of work, I have used this garment called the smock or the smock frock, um, which is traditionally a handmade garment. Women would have made them, but men would have worn them. So they're, they're not, they look like a dress in a way, but they're actually a, a garment for, traditionally for men. And they, the smock frock is this kind of very boxy, almost apron dress-like garment with a, a really complex pleating across the front and the back, which is then embroidered over the top, top giving it its name, the smocking or the smock. Uh, and they would have been worn in the 18th and early 19th century by field workers or farm labourers um, as being these kind of really durable, loose-fitting garments that would just be thrown over other clothes to protect the other clothes, and then you could take them off at night and you'd have your other clothes protected. 
so it's a sort of it might be sort of an interesting one to like why did I use the smock but I really was kind of leaning back to that kind of agricultural influence of it that's where they're located and the smock has a kind of almost a mythic status in British kind of folklore and culture. Um, it's very much tied to this idea of a pre-industrial idyllic British countryside where honest people worked the land and were really connected to the seasons, which is obviously partially true, but partially a kind of romanticised version of that. Um, but the smock then had a resurgence in the 70s with women's wear and children's wear when little girls started wearing these little kind of um, smocked garments and women were wearing sort of more what was called the kind of peasant-inspired fashion. And that was also about this kind of leaning back to that idyllic, romanticised past. And the relevance of that to the show and folk horror is that folk horror often undercuts that pastoral ideal. It's kind of often described as the antidote to that, um, cutting through this idea of um, Britain in particular is a kind of green and pleasant land full of quaint country folk and villages and, and often sort of sifting the darkness inherent in that to the surface. So when I decided to use the smock in the show, it was not just because it's a garment and garments are so wonderful and I'm really engaged with the social history of garments. It was also to tie it back to that kind of that folk horror idea of like, here's a romantic vision that we can then kind of slice through, unpick, unpack, modify, uh, and disrupt, which I like to do in my practice a lot, especially disrupting garments and disrupting expected things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like that's something that's very strong in the show, the sense of disruption of um, assumptions in particular. I think the show works on that level. But hearing you talk about that as well, I find it really interesting to shift the way that we encounter these works because the smock has become a very gendered garment item now and it would be much more... Um, typically seen worn by women and to read that into the work they read um, at first glance very much in a sort of typical uh, gothic horror sense of peril or violence perpetrated on a female protagonist but to then understand that these figures might represent male agrarian workers there is that kind of uncanny sense that we have to readjust our our expectations and our assumptions about the work mm. um, and I suppose if we're talking about agrarian workers, it w it's really uh, significant to talk about the found materials that are incorporated into this show. So in the Beckoning Blade, you're repurposing old farm equipment, including scythes and sickles and so forth. Um, in the song of Master John Goodfellow, an earlier show, it was gourds. Does this process present particular challenges or does it inspire different forms of creativity? Yeah, so working with found objects. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's sort of, it's interesting. It's something that I... Um, I haven't always leaned into. I've often been much more kind of constructing things from scratch. And uh, over recent years, I've started incorporating more found objects and let's say quite loud found objects as in the kind of carriers of history and meaning or um, symbolism. I'm really drawn to that though, particularly with things like the scythe. Like I'm drawn to the fact that it is a completely mundane agricultural object, uh, but it's also got wild kind of symbolic connotations with death and the grim reaper and stuff like that. So I feel like, you know, when I'm working with an object like that, I'm trying to balance those two things and and then also find my own way into it so yeah working with found objects is uh you know it carries a lot of weight with that and I'm often trying to balance that and also sort of not rely too heavily on the weight of that object particularly something that is so beautiful and so inherently um, loaded with history you don't want to sort of just oh that's the only thing it's doing but you're also trying to sort of find your own way in with that and and kind of work with it the gourds were interesting because a gourd is a kind of, I feel like not a particularly well-known object. You know, it's a, it's a fruit. 
but it's um, not a particularly well-known or recognisable fruit. So that one, I had, I feel like I had to work a lot harder to kind of sift the, the meaning to the surface to kind of get that idea across. But there are also really kind of overt associations of the gourd with kind of plant matter and veg vegetation and um, uh, and often sort of referencing bodily parts as well. So I was sort of trying to hold them up a little bit. Mm. And I've been fortunate enough to visit your studio when some of these works are in preparation. I've seen the meticulous sketches and the kind of ideation that you do in preparing a work. But I imagine working with a found material that governs some of the uh, outcomes of the work and dictates its shape and so forth. Is that a is that a uh, a way of compromising with materials that you enjoy, or do you struggle with that? Um, I mean, I like that the the objects will set the terms a little bit for me, but then I also like that I can kind of I can wrench them a little bit to my own will. So uh, I I probably bought at least twelve sides overall over the course of a couple of years and sickles and I, I would have them in the studio moving them around and then started cutting some of them up or swapping out that blade for that handle um, so I guess in, a, in some ways the material or the object dictates a little bit how I can work with it and sometimes I'll sketch something in my book and then I'll go to mock it up and it won't behave that way at all and that's quite frustrating because you're like I wanted it to hang this way and the side won't do that so then you have to have a kind of call and response with the object so when I'm, when I'm working with something like that, a pre-existing thing, yes, I do a lot of sketches, but then I move very quickly to a mock-up stage just to see how is this operating and I'm not going to come unstuck, hopefully, by working something out, planning it to the nth degree and then going to do it and being like, oh, okay, well, that didn't operate at all how I thought it would. So it's a bit of a kind of call and response, I guess. Mm. And I suppose an element of the work that may be less visible to people than the, the intricate textile work is the very clever engineering that goes beyond, behind the scenes as well. The way these things sit on the wall, the way, the way they're arranged, and I hope I'm not revealing any uh, technical secrets here, but there are magnets installed in some of those works to ensure that the fabric falls in the way it's intended to. I think they're quite marvellous. Thank you. Yeah. Um, like the engineering of them, like getting something on the wall. I often sort of say like as a sculptor, like gravity is my enemy because it would be so much easier if I could just hold something up and it would just stay where I wanted it to go. But I also think if there was no gravity, I wouldn't have as much fun as I do trying to work those things out. So I do put a lot of energy into the engineering of these things, getting them on the wall. I think about that a lot with garments because garments have been displayed in so many different ways over, over the years, both in art practice and in costuming and in museums. And I think about what am I bringing to that? Um, for the current trip of the Beckoning Blade, um, I worked really closely with J James Dodd, who's an artist but as, as well a fabricator, uh, showing him my designs, like this is how I want this piece to hang on the wall, this is the aesthetic that I wanted to. And then he would bring some of his engineering know-how as to, well, this might be a simpler way to do that or to mock it up that way. But I do think about those fixtures as being in this show in particular, very, very much part of the work, not hiding them, not um, uh, not concealing them in a, in, a, in a way that some other works have done that, but really sifting them to the surface and just kind of leaning into it. And But I, I like that engineering, like I like that problem solving. That's really exciting to me to be like, how do I make this thing float on the wall but also acknowledge the, the substrate that it's on? And I suppose this process of sourcing found materials, they're not always sort of found on the side of the road. It brings you in contact with other communities, other collectors, other 
potentially uh, people that might grow gourds or, or collect farm equipment or something like that. What, did, what was the process of like sourcing these materials? Like? Well, I'll start with the gourds because just because it's a great thing. But like when I, I originally had this idea, I had, I had a gourd that my friend had given me from their garden. I had it for about two years before I decided I wanted to work with gourds. And then I quickly realized I'm going to need more gourds. So I Googled Buy Gourds Australia and the Gourdfather was the very first website that came up. So I sourced a lot of my gourds from the Gourdfather. He's a New South Wales based grower. Um, I wonder what comes first, the gourd or the name Gourdfather. <laughs> yeah. And you think, I better grow some gourds. I think he's been doing it since the 70s. So I feel like he probably lent into that. Um, yeah, and then the scythes, I mean, I, I can't remember where I got my first scythe genuinely. I think I just might have Googled the Scammels website or found one in, in an antique store. And then you start to turn your lens on it and hone in and be like, right, where are these objects? I would just regularly check Scammels, regularly, regularly check Gumtree um, and check every single uh, antique store I pass. But then, you know, if I like did a little post on Instagram about I'm collecting size, people would start ringing me. I remember you rang me once and I'm in an antique store in the Barossa or whatever. I found a size. Do you want it? And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Buy it. So I really love it when people reach out to me with stuff like that and often just send me pictures of tools and like, would you like this? And I can sort of, um, jump in with that. Um, but I also for this project collected floral embroidered handkerchiefs or floral embroidered um, pieces of fabric like tablecloths and stuff like that and I was kind of aware that it would take me ages to scour shops for those things and I potentially needed hundreds of them so I did a little Instagram call out saying hey friends and family like I, I need these floral embroidered handkerchiefs if people can contribute and that was a way as well for me that kind of actually has a conceptual link to the show which is that a lot of these festivals, particularly let's say May Day festivals, would be about communities and even the Burry Man as well, gathering flowers or natural organic material to make the costumes for the special parade and that that kind of community involvement is really important. But I'm not a particular, I'm a very studio-focused, solitary worker. I'm a very traditional in-the-studio worker. Um, so that was my kind of way of, of uh, kind of doing a community kind of call out, like help me gather flowers, but they just happen to be embroidered flowers instead of natural flowers. And that was a way to sort of um, do my own version of the May Queen collection, if you like. Yeah, it's beautiful how that sort of concept ties into the process so so neatly, as it were. Um, now, I remember speaking to you in your exhibition and, and describing some of the, the physical forms on the wall uh, as quite human and seeing sort of different arrangements of limbs. But you uh, suggested to me that there are other echoes there about um, a ways of honouring farm equipment and farm machinery and how that might be, um, how clothing might be used differently with those. Is that something we can touch on in this, in this conversation? Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, the first few works I made for the Beckoning Blade were the highly figurative pieces because I was just first... Uh, becoming comfortable and familiar with the smock garment and trying to work out its sort of edges. So there are several kind of full figure kind of works in there that are meant to sort of stand in for that figure, maybe be a scarecrow kind of character or something like that. But then when I hone in on a particular technique, what I want to do is start tearing it apart from the inside and like, uh, yeah, like changing it and, you know, making incursions in it and sort of seeing what I can do with that technique. So I guess the works um, that sort of – I guess there's works where, the, the, yeah, the tool kind of uh, – the scythe maybe kind of comes higher up in the hierarchy and the garment slips away or there's a kind of equal footing with them. 
and there's some works in there where the garment's not present at all and the tool is kind of doing all the work or the manipulation to the tool is doing the work. Um, but, yeah, they, they sort of variously sit in kind of figurative or semi-figurative or just kind of some kind of weird manipulation of the smock. I'm not sure if that kind of answers the question. Or, no, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah no, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, do you have a different approach for making work for a, a commercial gallery outcome, like the, the Beckoning Blade that's on at Hugo Michel Gallery, as opposed to exhibiting in a group show in a large-scale exhibition in a public gallery? I'm thinking uh, of your work Beatrice that was part of the Monster Theatre's show at the uh, 2020 uh, Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art at the Art Gallery of South Australia. How do you approach those different types of projects? Um, look, look, I do approach them slightly differently because you have to sort of be cognizant of what the space is that you're going into. Uh, I would say that my kind of, my benchmark is like I would never compromise the work. I would never kind of change what I'm thinking to fit a particular um, need. Like I wouldn't sit back and think, well, now I'm making commercial work and then that's, you know, something else. But I do think a little bit more about like, okay, Hugo Michel is a commercial gallery. There is a kind of need to engage with the space in a slightly different way than if I'm engaged in a biennial space. So Beatrice was, I consider, a much more site-dependent work. It was located in the Museum of Economic Botany as part of the biennial. So uh, and because it is a binding, I think I just went in hard with like, let's just make a big grand gesture kind of sculpture. Let's make something um, that's kind of a you know, single piece, for example, uh, that perhaps has a, a different kind of ambition to it. Um, uh, as in the ambitions kind of wrapped up in the kind of um, that moment and that time and that place and that that opportunity of the biennial. So yes, I did sort of approach that in a slightly more wilder manner. Um, and then I sort of turned my lens to, okay, well now I'm in uh, Hugo Michel, so it's a, it's a white cube gallery. There's sort of different parameters there, so I just try to move towards those parameters. But not not. I mean, I don't really know what I wouldn't know what ma like making for a commercial outcome particularly looks like because who knows what, what's going to work. I just go well. That's the work I want to make, and happens to be wall based at the moment because I'm thinking about a wall gallery. Mm, absolutely. I suppose touching on some of those older works like Beatrice that was at the Museum of Economic Botany and some of the gourd works that were in the Song of Master John Goodfellow, I'm really interested and I think this is a testament to your versatility. The textile techniques seem to change and shift according to the different body of work and the different context they're allu alluding to. Can you just touch on how you choose which technique to pursue? Yeah, so the Song of um, Master John Goodfellow with the gourds was was a sort of a uh, gosh I'm kind of thinking back to that work now but it was sort of a, a bawdy celebration um, it was playing very much off the sort of sexuality of the fruit and the um, and I was particularly uh, looking into uh, Tudor and Elizabethan costuming techniques then and in particular because of their lavishness their kind of um, color and palette and the sort of silks and the the kind of uh, excess of that and I was trying to uh, bring that language of excess to the gourds, like sort of a, as a counterpoint to their humble, earthy kind of origins, their very dirty kind of fruit. Um, but the Elizabethan techniques I was particularly interested in is this sort of slashing and cutting and this underlining coming through. And it sort of spoke to me of kind of uh, revealing and concealing stuff and about sort of hidden desires kind of being pulled to the surface. And I guess that really linked, linked well with the gourd kind of mm. concept of these sort of bawdy, uh, undergarments coming to the surface or kind of revealing revealing the sort of um, 
like prudishness and sexuality kind of like playing off against each other. Yeah, they reminded me a little bit of the way the pomegranate splits open and the seeds come out. It's yeah. another sort of very sexualized fruit. Yes, and I was thinking a lot about fruit when I was doing those those bodies of works around the gourd and thinking about, well, I don't want to do that with the gourd itself, but I want to sort of dress it in such a way that it feels like it's this explosion of ripeness or just on the turn as well, kind of on the turn fruit. And that was very much something with the... Uh, the national works of the MCA, this sort of sense of ripeness and kind of skins splitting open and insides kind of coming out, so revealing that that kind of lush or plush interior. So that felt very an appropriate costuming technique to use for that language, which I then carried forth into Beatrice. Um, although when I was thinking about Beatrice, she was sort of more on the rot, kind of on the turn. And I was looking at sort of the garden. Um, this, the Beatrice is based on the story, Rappuccini's daughter, but there's this sort of um, garden in there with these poisonous, toxic plants. So Beatrice kind of lent more into the toxicity of, of plant life and the uh, ruptures in the, the silk skins for her were sort of more about that fruit on the turn or that kind of decay setting in. And then when I started the beckoning blade, um, I, you know, I still really wanted to work with colour, but I just couldn't think. I couldn't think in silk anymore. And the introduction of the farm implements meant I was like, this, this, these languages don't speak to each other. And it was a big wrench in the first six months of thinking to put the silks aside and be like, okay, they're not working for this. Something new needs to come in. And I'd worked with linen before. Um, for this kind of homespun technique. So I brought the linens back in, but I brought in these wilder colours. So rather than traditional linen, a linen palette, like muted colours and greys and, and earthy textures, I was like, no, nah, I need to kind of bring the violent colours of the silks, but but marry that up with the, the linen and kind of get that kind of crossover. And that led to all these sort of really quite, yeah, really quite, what turned out to be quite a rainbow show, which was a bit of a surprise when I put it on the wall. I was like, oh, it's it's really colourful, like... Um, and I like colours that are on the turn as well, like a little bit of an uncomfortable colour, like sort of an off yellow or um, a sort of pucy pinky colour or, you know, there's like a, a sort of turmeric-y baby poo colour in there, which is sort of like nice but you wouldn't quite wear it. And I like that, you know, and in dyeing them and bleaching them, these other colours kind of came out that were really unexpected and I really like that sort of just, just colours on the turn, on the nose a little bit. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, I, I suppose this might be a bit of a cheeky question, but thinking back to to the the song of Master John Goodfellow with the gourds and Beatrice's place in the Garden of Economic Botany and the Museum of Economic Botany at the Adelaide Botanic Gardens, and then with the farm implements, are you a keen gardener, Julie? <laughs> I I wouldn't not I would not say I'm a keen gardener. Uh, a few years ago, um, we we regenerated our garden from from the scrap heap that it was and put some nice flower beds in. And I have since discovered that I quite like the idea of gardening and having a nice garden to look out on. But I have mainly planted things that I haven't been able to kill. That's my baseline is like if it doesn't die in the first season, I'll plant more of that. That's the level of gardening that I'm at. I... That sounds like a, a something that I can aspire to. That sounds like a good level of gardening to be no, no fruit or anything like that. It's just like really hardy plants in there. Um, I don't mind going out there and weeding a little bit. But um, 
like with a lot of things in my practice, I'm really kind of interested in the idea of them, maybe not the kind of literality of them. Sure. <laughs> and I assume your home garden is a little less dark than the beckoning blade or the poison uh, garden of Rappuccini's daughter. I think it's full of non-toxic things. Wonderful. <laughs> you think. Wonderful. Thank uh, I assume you. so. <laughs> uh, maybe this is a good opportunity to open up to some questions, if we have any questions for Julia. Is, if a corn is a fruit, is that, and you're making up, what, is there an expectation that it will deteriorate over time or do they what, or don't they? No. Well, yeah, well, it's really interesting because a gourd, because it is literally a fruit, but they, unlike all other fruit, instead of rotting, they, if you don't let them get wet, they harden from the outside. All the seeds dry on the inside and you're left with essentially almost a, a brittle, firm uh, kind of skin which if you shake it, you can hear the seeds rattling around inside. But there are literally gourds in like museum collections that are hundreds of years old. They, they just don't rot. So of all the fruits to use, it is the most archival one. And I was very conscious of that because, you know, um, not that I'm always seeking a kind of archival commercial outcome, but I do think, well, okay, I'm showing it in a gallery. If it sells, I need to be able to say that it has a life. Um, but I was also partly using the gourd for that reason. So the, the fact that they don't rot and they have all these seeds has made them symbolic of uh, fertility and longevity and um, uh, resurrection because of this sort of this long-lasting quality of them. So they're quite fascinating objects. They've been used for like musical instruments, for um, vessels, um, penis sheaths, all sorts of different uses over multiple different cultures. I just wanted to ask about the smocking. Did you do all the smocking yourself and did you do it by hand or was it a machine? Yes, yeah, so it's all done by me. It is all done by hand. Um, all the pleating is done by hand as well. It's quite time consuming, but, but I like that. Like that's, you know, I, I get off on that. Um, but also it's, it's, not, it's not that complex a technique. You know, pleating's not that difficult. You just dot everything out. So... You know, the hard thing was working out how to make the pleats work for me or how deep to, to do them, not the actual physical smocking. That was just sort of surface embroidery. Um, the biggest challenges I face in my work is looking after my body and making sure I don't do too long stints because I would happily sort of sew or smock for eight hours, but then I might wreck myself for the next day. So I have to do it in kind of sections. But it is all up my hand, and you might have seen a picture there before of the, the dorset wheel buttons, which look like little kind of embroidered wheels, and they're all done by hand as well. Um, and that's just like a little loop, like a little key ring that I weave all the fabric round, make a little spider web of the threads, and then do a little weavy under over um, so yeah, everything's done by hand where possible. I was just going to ask about the significance of the, the gold plated uh, um, sections. Some of the metal is, is, um, is gold. Yeah, so the I've used a lot of gold plating in previous bodies of work, and so I actually had my I had two scythe blades gold plated quite early on in the piece when I was still playing around with ideas. So I had one that was done on a rusty blade, so you get this matte finish. Um, which holds the texture of the rust, and then one that I asked them to polish it so I could see my face in it. Um, and it's a sort of, it's nearly an anomaly in the body of work because I was thinking much earlier on about uh, the ceremonial as part of ritual and, and um, thinking about signifiers of that so that you might have your best scythe blade or your special ceremonial one that you use for 
let's say, the right kind of job, which in folk horror might be the sacrifice. Um, and so I sort of wanted to allude to that with the, the, the blades, that there was a, a higher purpose or a different purpose to them and that in the context of everything else in the show, that, that purpose might be, um, you might not know what it is as a, as a viewer, but it sort of signifies there's something special about that. And gold plating is so lush, you know, like, and it's strangely not that expensive in the context of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's how I was trying to use the, the gold. And, I mean, it just super appeals to me having, like, a gold-plated scythe blade. Like, it's just, it's just it's partly an indulgence. <laughs> like, I'll be honest, it's also an indulgence. Thanks. The fabric that you've used, linen, I take it. Now, all the dyeing that's done, I presume you did it, but I'm asking, did you do it? Was it organic? What was special about the dyeing? And the thread, I noticed, too. Yeah, sure. So the, the linen was a choice because of the original smocks were all made of linen. Um, uh, so it's a historical reference there. Uh, none of the linens I used started out white. So everything had a base colour except for the, the white linens. Um, and then the dip dyeing, gosh, I'm trying to remember why I sort of, I think I started with this highly figurative piece, which is the sort of two interconnected garments that are um, like, a, like a four-armed scarecrow in a field. And I was thinking about, it's called the lurker at dusk, which is a, a sort of traditional name for a hare, which is another story from the time, but there we go. And a very evocative sort of title. And I wanted the work to feel like something that you would sort of see on a threshold time like dusk or dawn. And so I started with this kind of vaguely uncomfortable purple colour and I thought about dip dyeing it in orange to get this sort of idea of sunset or sunrise kind of coming into it. And I just wanted something that would disrupt the blankness of the colour. There's a lot of fabric in a smock, you know, it's six metres per smock. And I just felt like one big block of colour could be a bit, almost a bit bland. And I wanted to introduce something that would just sort of change that a little bit. And then it just opened up from there. I was like, oh my gosh, there's like so much I can do with dip dyeing and dribble dyeing and spatter dyeing. Some of the colours are derived from bleaching the fabric and seeing what a cut what kind of colors come out of that which is always very unexpected you don't know what bleach will bring to the surface um there's works that reference uh kind of dirt and the earth for example and then i just for each one i would think okay well what do i want the the, the thread to do so sometimes i was dip dyeing the thread to match it or spatter dyeing it so you would kind of have that feeling of a, a rusty kind of effect or sometimes I was overstitching with the base colour so you'd get more contrast or just using one colour across all the different colours, one colour thread across all the different fabrics so you get different points of contrast and interest. So that's kind of how I was using it. But, yeah, just to sort of, uh, yeah, disrupt the expected with the colour and, and give it a, a different kind of tint or a taint. I was just wondering if the names come first or, you know, do they come at different times or, like, do you start with the farm implement and you know which what order is the process yeah so the so the, the question of like the title the work or the object it's all a bit of a um a washing machine effect so it's not always the one that leads to the other in some cases I would start with the tool and I would have the idea for the tool in some cases I would start with the sketches and kind of improvising around that or I have I had just like a kind of plain garment in my studio that was throwing over things to try and manipulate that so that would lead to the the idea um and then sometimes a title would come after and sometimes I would start with a title so uh there's this yeah this this famous poem called the names of the hair which was translated by Seamus Heaney I think and it's this sort of um 
I guess, kind of magical poem where if the hunter is going out to kill the hare, he has to list all of the names. And it's like dozens and dozens of names. And it's a way of controlling. It's a kind of like um, performative magic, if you like, controlling this, this hare that you can then shoot. Anyway, the reason I'm saying that is because hares are very prevalent in folklore and folk horror. And a lot of the names of the hare are like the lurker of dust, the stubble stag, the nibbler at dark, all this sort of stuff. They're really evocative titles. And so I gleaned a few of them and was like, I'm farming these out in the show. Like they're really great titles. Um, the purblind one is one of the titles and one of the, and the connections. The raker of mud is another title for the hare and for the work. So really evocative titles. Um, there was one title that came first amongst all of them, and that's a work called Burrow Mump, which is just the name for a little hillock. Um, and I was like, that's just such a great word. It's almost onomatopoeic sort of. So I was like, that I need to make a work that fits that. That was quite a hard challenge to fit the work to the title, and I was persistent in that. Um, and, yeah, and then I, you know, I bought a lot of job lots of farm implements and um, rakes and, and hoes and scythes, and then I would just have them all around my studio. I mean, it's two years. This is two years in the making. This, so some things I would have around literally for two years, and I would be like, I'm doing something with you. I just don't know what I'm doing yet, and I needed to like learn more about the body of work before I could include that object in there. Um, so the rakes came quite late. There's a flax hackle, which is. Um, uh, looks like a kind of really angry nail comb on wooden surface that I bought, I think, a year ago, but didn't work out what to do with it until about three months ago because I was just sitting with the object, learning its properties, working out of all the millions of things I could do with this, what's the kind of dominant idea I want to express in that particular object and how do I work with something so loud? So, yeah. I'm sorry, I think we could talk to Julia all day, but I'm also aware that she has a, another class to get to and teach in about 10 minutes. So let's give her a 10-minute reprieve and please join me in thanking Julia Robinson for her time today.